The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. And it just demonstrated that those who tend to drink more over years and years and years are at higher risk of eventually developing a diagnosis of AFib. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features two articles from the August 31st, 2021 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The first is Acute Consumption of Alcohol and Discrete Atrial Fibrillation Events, and the second is an editorial titled Holiday Heart Confirmed Alcohol-Associated Atrial Fibrillation. Joining us is the author of this paper, Dr. Gregory Marcus. He is Associate Chief of Cardiology for Research at the University of California at San Francisco Health. His particular research interests include cardiovascular effects of alcohol and caffeine and other common modifiable lifestyle factors. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Greg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I was really fascinated by this. I'm going to start out with an anecdote. A number of years ago, we had a resident who told me that he was from Louisiana and he had gone to Mardi Gras and had to be admitted to the hospital for atrial fibrillation. Uh, And you can imagine why he had that. And I'd always heard about holiday heart. I thought it was just didn't need to be proven. And so why did you even do this study? And was there a controversy you were addressing or an unknown you were addressing? We were seeking to prove uh, in an objective fashion this relationship between alcohol consumption and a discrete acute episode of AFib for several reasons. One is that alcohol consumption is so ubiquitous. And so we didn't know for sure whether there could be a sort of availability bias or immediacy heuristic meaning People get AFib, you know, at apparently random times, and clearly it can occur in the absence of alcohol, but we know that alcohol is so commonly consumed, and it's quite natural when one suffers a concerning, uncomfortable, especially scary event without any explanation to look back and kind of grab onto, well, what did I just do that was unusual, that could have triggered this? So there was always that possibility, again, because alcohol consumption is so common that there was a spurious correlation made. And it was only, you know, I I agree with you that there's this conventional wisdom that the holiday heart exists, but it was really always based on fairly anecdotal case series. And then that was then extrapolated in large epidemiologic studies where investigators sought to test this hypothesis. But really the only way to feasibly do that was to look at baseline reports of how much alcohol one tended to consume, which was pretty much invariably just their chronic 
pattern of alcohol use and then look at them over time to see if indeed they were at a higher risk of developing incident atrial fibrillation. And that's just a property of the nature of existing data sets that you don't generally have the specific timing of discrete AFib episodes, much less the exact timing of when one tends to drink. And so this relationship that has been reproducibly demonstrated, and we've published on, on this using this sort of study design as well, didn't really address that more acute question. It just demonstrated that those who tend to drink more over years and years and years are at higher risk of eventually developing a diagnosis of AFib. And so we really wanted to demonstrate or at least seek to understand whether there was this nearly immediate time-sensitive relationship. And then in the process, sort of test the, the more broad hypothesis that atrial fibrillation events themselves, when they occur or, or, or the reason they occur, it's not purely due to random chance alone, but maybe there is some modifiable uh, exposure that influences the risk of a discrete event. And in the process, hope to understand the timing of that relationship to see if there were any thresholds of alcohol needed and maybe have some clues to underlying mechanisms. I love the methods of this study. You went to so many interesting details to make sure that you weren't just dealing with re recall bias. It was like you collected data and you confirmed the data in two or three different ways. So if you could explain the, the methods, because I think that understanding the methods, everything else follows beautifully. Yes, thank you for the, the kind words we did. <laughs> try to put a, quite, quite a bit of effort into making this as rigorous as we could. So we ascertained alcohol consumption in really four different ways, three of them being this more time-sensitive assessment. So first, like all studies, we asked people about their normal drinking patterns. I think that's the least interesting, certainly the least novel contribution uh, of this uh, paper. Two, we asked our participants to press the button on their ECG monitor whenever they had a drink of alcohol. So this is the same button that patients use clinically to identify when they have symptoms so that we can line up the timing of their symptoms with whatever their heart rhythm is. We, we made sure they understood not to use it for that purpose, but just for each drink of alcohol per the kind of standard a glass of wine, 12 ounce uh, can or bottle of beer or shot of, of hard liquor. One advantage of that approach is because it was ascertained in real time, that should mitigate against recall bias to some extent because it's occurring as they drink. Clearly people could have forgotten to do it. We did also check in with them at two weeks and then at four weeks to make sure they didn't inadvertently hit the button. And thankfully that was, they never reported that. They also uh, really had no incentive to be dishonest, unlike in, for example, if this was a study of alcohol use disorders where maybe there was this sense or concern of, of stigma. Here, these patients are highly motivated to understand why they're getting AFib. They were highly motivated to contribute. And in fact, one incentive for them was when they were done, we provided them with their data and we, we showed them with a little Excel kind of figure 
the exact timing of when they said they drank versus the timing of their AFib. So that was the second way we ascertained it. Third, we fit everyone with continuously recording alcohol sensors in the form of an ankle device that essentially infers blood alcohol concentration from sweat. It's the same device that's used in law enforcement called the SCRAM device. We recognized very quickly that there was concern about you know, participants being embarrassed or you know, <laughs> what others may think of them walking around with these ankle monitors. So we think we successfully mitigated that by slapping a big UCSF cardiology sticker on there so they could say, yeah, I'm working with cardiology or I'm doing this study. So that was the second way or third way, sorry. And then the fourth way, we obtained a blood at two and four weeks that we tested for a compound called phosphatidylethanol, also known by investigators that frequently use it as PETH, P-E-T as in Tom H. And this is kind of like a hemoglobin A1C for alcohol consumption. It's not super sensitive, but is very specific. There's really nothing other than the metabolism of consumed ethanol that will, that will produce this. And then if once one reaches a threshold, it is quantifiable. And we use that primarily to validate the button presses and, and demonstrate it, in fact, that the presence of phosphatidylethanol and the, the amount of it correlated very well with the button presses. We did the same between the alcohol sensor and the button presses and the alcohol sensor and the PETH. In our analyses, we did really two completely independent uh, sorts of assessments when it comes to the predictor. So we analyzed the button presses as a predictor, and then separately, we analyzed data from the alcohol sensors as the predictor. So to make this even more useful, the study population, how many people did you study and what was the criteria from a cardiology standpoint for getting into the study? So we studied 100 people. Uh, the inclusion was essentially paroxysmal atrial fibrillation patients. The reason, you know, there's, there isn't any reason to believe that these findings shouldn't be relevant to persistent atrial fibrillations. Uh, after all, those with persistent AFib had to have an initiation of their AFib at some point. But of course, then you don't have the benefit of multiple episodes per individual. And so that we couldn't employ the case crossover design where in each person served as their own control over this relatively limited period of time of one month. People had to report drinking at least once a month. We certainly didn't want to take people who had some sort of allergy or hypersensitivity to alcohol. Uh, and we generally didn't want to encourage more drinking. What we instructed them to do was just drink as they normally would. Similarly, we excluded individuals with known alcohol use disorders. We employed a uh, validated survey that identifies individuals who may not be aware of a pre-existing diagnosis that they may actually drink too much or have an alcohol use disorder. Again, just ethically didn't want to include those folks in the study. And they couldn't have any major changes in their AFib management planned for the month of the study. So if they're going to get ablated, uh, you know, 10 days in, uh, that wasn't going to be helpful. They could be on antiarrhythmic drugs, but that antiarrhythmic drug needed to be consistently prescribed and they needed to have evidence of recurrent atrial fibrillation despite that drug uh, prior. So after going through the, this really beautiful way of assessing whether there's a, uh, a timed relationship between drinking 
and having an episode of atrial fibrillation in someone who's prone to have episodes of atrial fibrillation. What'd you find? Yes. So we found, oh, and importantly, you know, a, a big question was, well, what is the timing? What time period do we look at? And so we asked everyone ahead of time. Uh, first, we asked them, does alcohol trigger your AFib? And about half said they thought yes. And then we asked them, when it triggers your AFib, how long does it take after you start to drink that an AFib you attribute to alcohol occurs, an AFib episode occurs? The median answer was four hours. So that was kind of our initial a priori target. And indeed, we found that one drink was associated with an approximately twofold higher risk of an AFib event happening uh, within four hours. We did look at various time points, and it looked like that effect peaked right around four to six hours and then gradually diminished and then uh, was lost after about 12 hours. And then there was a, an apparent dose-response relationship. So if someone hit that button twice, for example, their risk of an AFib event happening in the next four hours was threefold higher, suggesting the more they drank, the higher the risk they would experience of a discrete AFib episode. And then, as I mentioned, we separately looked at the alcohol sensor and found that the higher the alcohol concentration, the higher the risk an AFib event would occur. As I read the article, which I really like, I like this article a lot, I want to figure out how to use it. So I did primary care earlier in my career. I'm mostly a teaching academic hospitalist now. I get people admitted to my service periodically who who just went into AFib. And the most recent one that we had, it was, it was definitely related to alcohol. What should primary care physicians take from this? And what should hospitalists take from this? And when should cardiologists be called about this? How much patient education should we be doing as opposed to cardiologists? I would like to emphasize to the hospitalists that may be listening that, you know, it's really a, a special opportunity that you have. Uh, especially if it's a first episode of AFib that's landed them in the hospital to help them kind of, or to emphasize lifestyle changes that may uh, affect their overall health. And our study, as well as others, including a randomized trial that didn't look at necessarily acute effects, but more chronic effects, comparing abstinence to ongoing drinking, uh, that one being in fairly heavy drinkers and other studies all provide quite compelling and very consistent evidence that alcohol consumption is indeed a risk factor. And I think that these data, by demonstrating this immediate effect, perhaps may be more compelling to atrial fibrillation patients. We know in behavioral kind of modification research that people tend to be more motivated by concern about something that might happen immediately, as opposed to some long-term effects, such as smoking and the risk of lung cancer seems kind of theoretical. It's like climate change has had been for, for a very long time. So perhaps this is a, a good motivator, especially for those who drink heavily. For our atrial fibrillation patients, I think it's safe to tell them that minimizing alcohol and likely avoiding alcohol will reduce their risk of a recurrent episode. And especially for atrial fibrillation patients that want to know, and they often ask this question, you know, what can I do to reduce my risk, telling them there is evidence that alcohol acutely increases the risk for an event. And so avoiding alcohol 
is likely to be helpful in avoiding atrial fibrillation, I think that that's a reasonable message to share. Now, the common question is, well, what about the general population? Can we extrapolate these findings to the general population? And so it is important to acknowledge that this study was indeed only among those already with a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Clearly, the effects of alcohol are multifactorial. There's the you know, remaining open question as to whether light, regular drink, drinking may have health benefits. We don't know. Uh, we need a, you know, a big randomized trial, and uh, we're working on trying to get funding actually to do exactly that. But in the interim, the way that I've thought about this and, and how to counsel folks who don't have AFib is to point to this apparent dose-response relationship. So if we think of these individuals in our study as especially prone to atrial fibrillation, because they've already demonstrated they have AFib, and we think of people in the general population without the diagnosis as therefore less prone to AFib, and yet we found this sort of dose-response relationship. So the more you drink, the higher the risk, at least in atrial fibrillation patients. My take on this for the general population is to use it as further evidence of the harms of excessive alcohol consumption and really to caution against drinking more than, certainly more than two drinks in 24 hours. And my read of the literature is to avoid more than one drink in, in 24 hours among uh, the general population. To address your question about when to refer to a cardiologist, uh, and this obviously gets into broader topics related to kind of uh, modern day therapies for atrial fibrillation, including catheter ablation, antiarrhythmic drugs, new evidence that perhaps suppressing atrial fibrillation may really have benefits in terms of long-term outcomes, which is contrary to what a firm had taught us, taught us a, a while ago. I would favor a low threshold for referral to a cardiologist. I think there are a lot of beneficial things, including lifestyle management, but many things we can now offer our atrial fibrillation patients that we weren't able to provide even a, even a few years ago. We did a uh, podcast on the benefits, at least in heart failure, of mm -hmm. pulmonary vein ablation uh, for atrial fibrillation. And uh, since then, I've been much more quick to call cardiology when I, when I have such a patient. Let's finish up. After you've analyzed these data, do you have any good anecdotes of seeing patients and being able to use this information to uh, talk to patients or make decisions with patients? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I, I think, you know, our atrial fibrillation patients seem uh, extraordinarily motivated to identify triggers. Uh, in fact, we had a summit that was funded by the by PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, that brought together patients uh, and investigators. Uh, the theme was really cardiovascular very broadly. And we formed interest groups organically. I, not surprisingly, ended up in an atrial fibrillation interest group along with multiple atrial fibrillation patients. And part of the, our charge in this meeting was to identify areas of interest to patients that they felt like we as investigators had failed to fully address. And when we asked our AFib patients about that, they said, triggers, we wanna know about triggers. We want you to study what the acute triggers of AFib uh, are. And in my experience, seeing as a, a cardiac electrophysiologist and having a very busy practice of arrhythmia patients, um, the great majority of whom have atrial fibrillation, uh, I will tell you that sharing this evidence with them 
is, is, is extremely powerful and, and they're very appreciative. They will, and again, prior to publication, they ask me very frequently, what can I do to prevent AFib? They also are, you know, ask very frequently, why did I get AFib Monday? You know, I, I didn't have it on Sunday. I had it on Monday at 1.30, 1.35 p.m. You know, they, they, they know exactly when they went in and they really want to know what happened. Why, why did that happen at that time? And so to be able to give them some, some evidence uh, that there is an exposure that is under their control that can influence their disease, they find to be very helpful. And that's, you know, extremely gratifying for, for all of us. Well, thank you so much for doing the study and for joining us on the podcast. I love the study and I love the message that you've brought to it. So uh, thanks once again. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate the kind words and opportunity to talk about it with you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating article teaches us a lot about paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and likely much about atrial fibrillation and alcohol. We've all known for years about the concept of holiday heart. This article does a great job of showing that especially in paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, alcohol does trigger events within about four hours. One drink uh, increases the risk of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation by as much as two times, and two or more drinks have even a greater propensity towards causing atrial fibrillation. Patients are interested in the immediate effects of any triggers of atrial fibrillation, and this can be used in order to give patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation a better idea. There are already data that uh, long-term alcohol use is a risk factor for atrial fibrillation, and this will be important as we talk to our patients who either present with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation or with a new atrial fibrillation that is not paroxysmal. We hope that listening to this podcast has helped you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.